The following audio is from Downtown Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Uh, let's go now to Hebrews chapter 7 as we um, give our attention to the Word of God. Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the king kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who he had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a necessarily change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not only in the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it was witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once and for all, he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of God. Be to God. Thank you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning that that you are a God that speaks. You have not left us in silence, but you have spoken. And so may we pay heed to your word, may we pay attention to your word, may we hold it high, may we allow your word to shape our thoughts and not seek to change your word with our own thinking and understanding and limited perspective. Father, we need your spirit to to pierce our hearts in ways that only you can. We need you to open our eyes and give us ears to hear. Father, we need to see Jesus this morning. That's our greatest need, not only today, but any day, at any moment. And so show us Jesus, convince the skeptical, be um, reconvince the believer. And Father, draw us all to the same place of true worship, true obedience, faith and hope, and a posture of repentance. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you saw it uh, this past week, but um, a special documentary was made on the life of Alan Iverson. Um, it was called The Answer, and it was really well done. Um, but it, like so many documentaries, uh, such as you know, 30 to 30 and all these other different documentaries, um, forced the question, who's the greatest player in NBA history? And uh, that really depends on who you ask. Um, if you ask somebody in Philadelphia, they're going to say AI. But if you ask somebody in, uh, uh, in L.A., they're probably going to say Kobe or Magic or uh, Shaquille O'Neal. If you go to Chicago, of course, it's MJ. If you, it just it really depends on where you go. But what is interesting is that that debate never ends. And, and it really doesn't matter what field. It doesn't matter what platform. If you're not in NBA, whatever you're into, that debate is occurring. Who is the best? And everybody has their own opinion. And, and it's personal. Uh, it's not just an opinion. It, it is, it, it's a topic from which we are really getting a lot of our identity. Uh, because nobody needs to badmouth the person that we put our identity and hopes in, right? And that's really where we find the Jewish believers in our passage this morning because the Jews throughout history had put their hopes in Abraham. Uh, they had put their hopes in, um, in Father Abraham, the, the greatest of, of all. And yet, as we see, that became an impediment for trusting Christ as the Messiah. We see it in John chapter 8, because Jesus comes and he says, um, he says, look, anyone who keeps my word is going to live forever. He's not going to die. And, and the Jews step back, the Pharisees especially, and say, hey, 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 wait a minute. And this, this is what they say. Now, we know that you have a demon, Jesus, declared the Jews. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that anyone who keeps your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, as did the prophets. Who do you claim to be? You see, Jesus has come as the Messiah, but they miss him because their hope is in their MVP, Abraham. The Jewish believers 
in Rome, those to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing are facing intense persecution. Their lives are on the line. They're being killed. They're being driven away from their homes. Intense persecution has broken out in Rome. And we all know that when we are under persecution, when we are facing tough times, we get religious. <laughs> we, we find something to hold on to in addition to Jesus. Uh, we get our lives in order in addition to Jesus because we kind of think, hey, he may not be enough. And that's where the believers in Rome are. They're thinking Jesus may not be enough. And so they go back to the old way of doing things. They go back to old school thinking. They go back to Abraham. And so the writer of Hebrews writes and he shows that, that it's, it, it's irrational to believe in Abraham because there was one on the earth that was greater than Abraham and his name was Melchizedek. Where did he come from? We don't know. He had no parents. He didn't. There's no record of him dying. He seemed to live forever. And when Abraham, as recorded in Genesis 14, came back from conquering kings, who, who did he go to but Melchizedek? And what did Abraham do but give a tenth of the spoils to Abraham? And so the writer of Hebrews is saying not only is it crazy and irrational to, to be going to the old way of doing things under the Abrahamic covenant, but Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, but guess what? There's one greater than Melchizedek, and his name is Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is say, look, all you have to do in life as a believer is fix your eyes on Jesus because he is better and he is enough. Jesus is better and Jesus is enough. If you want to understand Christianity, that's it in a nutshell. It's not religion, it's relationship. It's holding Jesus high and living under him and that's what the writer of Hebrews is showing us, so let's look at it. We need to be convinced, I think, as the writer of Hebrews is, is showing us, that Jesus is better and Jesus is enough because he is more able to rule and run our lives than we. Jesus is able, much more able, to run and rule our lives than we are. Our family went to Lake Hamilton a couple weeks ago. It's over in Arkansas, and uh, we had a couple of places there that uh, we were allowed to use, and we had um, our three daughters and um, three uh, son-in-laws and um, all the grandkids, and so it was a, it was a crazy, crazy fun week. Uh, but one day we rented a pontoon boat, and I love pontoon boats because you can get the whole family on them. You're just out there in the middle of the lake, and you know after pulling the tube around a little bit, we uh, we threw anchor and we were out in, in in this deep water, and those that wanted to swim jumped in. But as I'm swimming around, I noticed that Bennett, our four-year-old grandson, is uh, he's got his life jacket on or that little shark thing or you know whatever the little floaty thing is they have these days. He's he's uh, on the boat and he 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 keeps running to the back of the boat and he gets on the ladder and he puts his foot in and he gets back up and he runs and I can tell he's scared to death to get into the water. And so I, we're all, co you know, saying, come on, come on, come in the water, come in the water. And he's, oh, you, you know, he runs over and he'll get down and his, you know, his booty will get in the water. Then, you know, he'll go down and he'll, he'll run back in the boat. And so I'm like, all right. So I kind of swim over there and I'm reaching my hand out. I'm saying, come on, Bennett, come on, Bennett. And finally he grabs my hand, 
but he still has his other hand on that ladder, you know, and he's looking at me, and I know this is my chance, and so I give him a little jerk, he comes into the water, and it's, oh, this, you know, he's laughing, he's, you know, he, he's flailing around, he's loving it, and the rest of the week, he is in the water. And friends, what, what the writer of Hebrews is telling the Hebrews is, Jesus is a king that you can trust to take your hand and pull you into the water. I mean, that's what's going on here. Why why all this talk about Melchizedek, this weird, ancient figure, mysterious, just, you know, mystery. uh, uh, Melchizedek is shrouded in mystery. He's only mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and now Hebrews 7. it's, It's just odd. And yet you know that therefore there must be something that, that he's throwing our way. And the primary thing that we're seeing is, is that, that this Melchizedek was different than any other priest because he was not just a priest, but he was a king. He was a priest king. He's the only other one in the scriptures except for who? Jesus. You see, Jesus is a priest king as well. And if you look at, he was king of Salem. Salem in Hebrew means peace, and so he was king of peace. What is the point? Jesus, and Jesus alone, is our king. If Bennett didn't trust me and us that day, he would live his life in the boat. You see, he has a four-year-old frame of reference. He only has four years and only a couple that he can possibly remember, maybe only about a year and a half that he can actually remember. And so he is operating, his, his emotions, his, his fears, his hopes, his dreams are operating in a very finite world. And so if he doesn't have someone who's gone before him, someone who's been in the water before, someone who knows how, how fun and free and joyful the water can be, then he's going to live his life in the boat. Do you see it? Jesus as the king of Salem, Jesus as the king of peace, is the one who when we are in the boat and we're putting our toe in the water of his law, we're putting our toe in the water of where he is calling us to be, changes that he's calling us to make, we think in our limited, finite understanding that he's trying to kill us. But guess what? He is trying to show us where life is. He's trying to show us where we can swim, where, where we, can, we can laugh, we can have joy. And yet, boy, we are holding on to the ladder. And when we feel him getting close, what do we do? Scurry up that ladder and get out of here. And yet Jesus is saying, no, I am the king not of anxiety. I am the king not of, I am the king of peace. Come to me. Is Jesus your king of peace this morning? And then secondly, we see Jesus has built a better reputation for us than we can build. Jesus is is enough. Jesus is better because He can build a better reputation for us than we can build for ourselves. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but let me just tell you, it's a huge deal. Um, Rachel, my wife, went out of town uh, to play in a tennis tournament recently. And she was going to be out of town for three or four days. And um, as an empty nester, guys, uh, you know what that means. I mean, I was sad to see her go, but 
But maybe not that sad, you know, um, because I planned a bunch of fun stuff. I was going to go fishing. I was going, you know, I just had a bunch of fun stuff planned. I was going to hang out with some guys. Um, well, the day she left, I got sick, and I spent three days in bed alone. And so, the day she comes back, I feel better. I'm well, and I'm an extrovert. And so the worst thing you can do is put me in a house alone for three days, you know, alone. And so I couldn't wait for her to get home. So I go pick her up. I'm all excited, you know. I've got all these plans. And and as soon as we get in the car, Amy Catherine, uh, our youngest daughter, and on that day, our demon-possessed daughter in my mind, called my wife. And and she was in a hurry because she was having a group of people over and, and she needed a recipe. And it was, it was you know, I don't know if she was at the store or she was in the kitchen making it. I mean, it was a legitimate phone call to a mom. And so they start talking and talking. And as I'm driving, all this junk is just coming up in my heart. I'm like, I'm not getting any attention. She's like, you know, she's putting the kids before me. I mean, all this, I'm like, Whoa. And by the time we got in the house, she could tell what is wrong with him. And she said something, and boy, I snapped. And then I kind of marched upstairs, went in the bedroom, closed the door. And as I'm walking in, I'm thinking, buddy, this is all your fault. Now, before that time, I am convinced this woman that God gave me is, you know, just unjust, you know. There's no one, I mean, she didn't even, she is not nearly as excited to see me as I am to see her. I have totally convinced myself of that until that moment when I realized, buddy, this is all your fault. And so what's the hardest thing in the world to do? Apologize. So I kind of go downstairs, said, hi, honey. She didn't even look up at me. <laughs> I said, I know, I know, but just hear me. That was all my fault. It was none of your fault, and I'm so sorry. Why is that so hard to do? Because I believe at the very essence of our flesh is a defense attorney who is always building case after case after case after case of any perpetrator that comes near us and indicts us of being less than what we think we are, our flesh begins to start, start filing a case against them. Our flesh starts raging against and we start self-justifying ourselves to the point that we are right, to the point that literally uh, an issue that had nothing to do with my wife had 110% to do with me, I was totally convinced it was her fault. I do a Bible study with a number of guys uh, called Sonship, and I've done it for probably 15 years now. And uh, there's a self-analysis at the, beginning of, uh, at the beginning of the study, and there are a list of questions that you were to mark if, it, if it's true for you. And uh, one of the, the explanations or statements reads this way, defensive. 
can't listen well, bristles at the charge of being self-righteous, thus proving the point. I don't know, I can't honestly can't remember anybody that I've done this study with that did not mark that. Because that is the essence of who we are. How do we do that? How did my how did my flesh, how did I that day convince myself that she was the perpetrator when I was the 110% of the problem? It's because what Jeremiah 17.9 says is so true. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, that's the only... It's the only thing that makes sense. My heart is deceitful. I was deceived. I have an attorney in my heart who is fighting against me, who's saying, it's her, it's her, it's her. And this is how it's her. This is why it's her, to the point where I'm just ready and convinced it's her. When in fact it's me. You see, friends, we are driven by the need to feel right and be right. Notice in verse 2 that Melchizedek is referred to as the king of righteousness. And the king of righteousness um, is the one who reigns over all of righteousness. (laughs) Uh, He is the one who is right. And Melchizedek is just a forerunner of Jesus. And we see this in verses 26 through 28. The writer writes... For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Do you see, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Dear friends, we are literally made righteous in the sight of God, in the courtroom of God, by the declaration that we are righteous because we are so identified with the person of Jesus that the Father, as He accepts Jesus, accepts us. Is that your reputation? Do you see, if that's your reputation, then you don't have to build up a reputation. I don't have to be... How can I admit to this vulnerable story of what I did to my wife because being a perfect husband is not my reputation. Do I wish that that didn't happen? Do I hate it? Is it embarrassing? Yes. But there is a better reputation to rest in. And His name is Jesus. And it's not just some religious, spiritual, you know, hypothetical thing out here. In the courtroom of God, which is reality... He has declared us, because we are united in Christ, He has already declared us right and righteous. Because Jesus filled up in the law everything that we could never fill up. And there's freedom in that. 
the brilliance of the, the gospel is uncanny. Because now I can stand before you and say, I'm righteous and not be proud. Because my righteousness rests not just apart from me, but my righteousness rests in spite of me. I know that I'm righteous because of a gift that has been given me. And that gift is the record of Jesus imputed to my account for eternity like I won the lottery, did nothing for it. It was put in my account and now it's mine. But I have nothing to do with it. Therefore, it brings humility and boasting in Jesus' confidence simultaneously. That's crazy. There's nothing else like that. Nothing. Do you know that reality this morning? What you've heard about Christianity, have you heard that? Is that what you're rejecting? And then thirdly and finally, Jesus is the end of religion and religious living. Jesus is the end of religion. He ends religion and religious living. I started recently, and a bunch of people have, you know, been watching this for several years, I guess, but uh, American Ninja Warrior. Got any American Ninja Warrior fans out here? All right, there we go. There you have it. Well, it's the concept's pretty simple. You start at the beginning of this obstacle course, and you go through this obstacle course, and if you fall, you hit the water, and you're out. Uh, it's a competition. So, I mean, guy, there are guys that have tried. This is like their third season trying, you know. And I saw one guy last night, and uh, he's like, yeah, man, I've, you know, I've got on the paleo diet. I've, I've, you know, I've dropped all, you know, just all this stuff. I've, I've bulked up, but I'm... And, uh, like, the first thing, he was in the water. I'm like, mm, dang, that guy's been training for three years, and it's done like that. And in that life... In that life, we set our expectations high, and we fail, and we feel like a failure. Because that's what religion is. I mean, religion says, here's the bar, now reach it. And if you've ever tried that, you realize, I can't reach it. And so, you've got one or two alternatives. You either start playing games, and you start judging other people that aren't reaching it as high as you are. (laughs) Or you just say, I give up. You know, the only other place in life that does not work like this competitive environment of if you fail, you're a failure, are relationships. I met a woman this week uh, who I was, she was an extraordinary woman. Um, When I introduced myself to her, uh, she introduced herself to me and then she introduced her adult um, mentally challenged, severely mentally challenged son to me. And about all he was able to do was just kind of smile. There was no verbal anything. And as I talked to her, I watched her just rubbing her son's back. I don't know, he's 20, 25, I don't know. And she's talking to me and she's rubbing her son's back. And he's just kind of looking down. There's no interaction, no verbal anything. And I see her kind of massaging his neck. And I watched her that whole night. We were at a public event, and she was a mother to her adult son who was severely, severely handicapped. And, you know, I I realized that that young man doesn't know much of anything but that his mother loves him. And isn't that the basic need that we all have? 
If we don't have that, we've got nothing. And isn't that what we're all trying to trying to compensate for? <laughs> Aren't we all trying to compensate for the love that we lost and the love that we don't feel? So do you understand now how the gospel of Jesus ends religious performance? If it doesn't, if God, if all God was doing in the Old Testament was saying, here's a law, now, now obey it perfectly, and those that do are in, and those that don't are out. If that's all He was doing, then He would be like no, He would be like all the other gods of the world. But see, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that is not how God works. Hebrews 7:18. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness. Listen to this: uselessness. Quote or, excuse me, parentheses, for the law made nothing perfect. Wow. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law made nothing perfect? If I were a Jew, I'd be saying, then why did we, what about all those fasts and feasts? What about the sacrificial system? What about the temple worship? What about bringing our offerings, you know, to, to, um, the priest and allowing him to be our mediator between us and God? What about all that? It was our whole lives. It's what we invested everything in. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is there was a purpose, but it wasn't necessarily the purpose for which you thought. The purpose was to prepare you for one who could be your true sacrifice. We see this in verses 22 through 28. This makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. I love that. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to intercede for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens... He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect for ever. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one we go to with our sin. He is the only place that we can go. That's why He instituted the Lord's Supper. Come and just simply eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus by faith. Simply say, this and this alone is my salvation. Jesus' performance is my salvation. There's not enough penance that I can do that would ever... Present me to God any better than Jesus does right now because He lives to intercede for me, the sinner. And He is doing that. And God the Father, therefore, is not frowning down upon me in uh, my life, but He is dancing over me with joy. He is accepting me as His son or daughter. He is rejoicing in me because when He sees me, He sees Jesus. And I got all of that through faith in what Jesus does. 
Dear friends, there is hope in Christ. Paul refers to it in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. What's the purpose of the law? To shut you up, not to build you up. Isn't that amazing? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Ah, excuse me. I got ahead of myself. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law. And if you feel better than someone else today, it's because you have lowered the standard of the law for you, and you have upped it for them. And here's the best but in the Bible. But now. The righteousness of God. We want to be right. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law or religious performance. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, dear friends, do you have faith in Jesus? then you are right before God. And let me tell you something. You say, well, if if that's true, then what's the motivation to obey? I think about the mentally challenged, severely mentally challenged young man that I met this week. Do you think there's nothing he wouldn't do for his mother? I, I I think he would die if she died. Because she is his, ho- his source of love. And dear friend, what has your heart has your actions. What has your heart has your being. What has your heart has your life. You're willing to give up anything for that which you love. And we were made for the love of God. Would you fall into Him this morning if you're not there? Would you be convinced or at least begin to think in that direction that this is what Christianity is about? And dear friend, if you're a believer already and you found yourself in the midst of trials or persecution or just numb by the process of life, would you renew faith this morning in the reality of who Jesus is for you? And would you love Him and would you let go of sin and would you hold on to Him? Lord Jesus, thank You for the hope that we have in You. Thank You for the joy and the life. Oh, Father, I pray that You would bring faith to us this morning. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. These words are far too great. And so, God, would You just move us to leave this place today to serve You, to worship You. And may the gifts we bring uh, right now as we offer tithes and offerings, may, may they simply be a... Uh, a simple thank you and reflection of how deeply we appreciate your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.